You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't on Savage Lovecast. It's Tuesday. People are out there voting midterm elections. So. Exciting. Uh, people have been voting for a while in states that still have early voting and states where Republicans haven't put an end to that to try to make it more difficult for people to vote. But I don't want to dwell on the election. We'll probably end up talking about the election next week when I will attempt to put in perspective and cheer everybody up about what looks like could possibly be a big Republican day today. And I will remind you how sad we all were in 2004 when George W. Bush got reelected and how we came back and fought and turn the tide and we can do that again if indeed it's a shitty day for Democrats today, which everybody says it's going to be and I'm really nervous. So let's not talk about the election. Let's just talk briefly about Halloween. It was Halloween on Friday night. Love it when Halloween is on a weekend. Don't want to talk about slutty, slutty costumes. You know how I feel about sexy, sexy, slutty, slutty Halloween costumes. I think that's fine. I think it's sexist in application when only girls go out in slutty costumes and we should just encourage boys to also go out in slutty costumes, not just the gay boys, but the straight boys too. Everybody should show off a little bit. There's a whole chapter in my uh, recent book, American Savage, about this fact, about Halloween and how it has become essentially the straight pride parade. And that's a good thing. People need an event in their calendar where they can be dirty and weird and crazy and not themselves in public and dress up in drag or in slutty clothes or scary clothes or whatever it is. They can just kind of let it all hang out. We have a sexually repressed culture, a sexually repressed sex-negative society. People bottle up their sexuality 365 days a year if they're good and decent people and don't inflict it on other people. We need that fashion. We need carnival. We need Mardi Gras. We need that one day in the calendar a year where people just go a little bit dirty, crazy nuts in public. And for years, for decades – uh, in gay land for the gay community, Halloween was the high holy – it was our Easter. It was our Christmas all bundled up into one. And then the Stonewall riots sort of took that away and pride in June became our Halloween and we still do Halloween but we don't keep it holy the way we used to. And straight people have kind of adopted Halloween as their own and I think that's awesome and you can have it straight people. And you need it. You need that day a year where you give yourself permission to be a little crazy and a little slutty in public and not just straight girls but straight boys too in a respectful and consensual way, of course. But I don't want to talk about that. I've talked about that a lot. I just talked about it a lot right now. I'd like to talk about something else I'd like to see begin to happen on Halloween. And it's a tradition Terry and I have started at our house, which is sugar and shots. We have sugar for the kitties. We have candy bars. We pass it out. And we keep by the door a few bottles of booze and tons of shot glasses. And as cold, damp, sad parents trudge up to the house with their excited, dressed-up children, we open the door and we throw candy at the kids and we pour shots down the throats of the grown-ups. If you can afford it on top of the candy bill, if you live in a house or neighborhood where people come by on Halloween, I recommend this. You just see their little eyes light up, not the kids with the candy, the grown-ups with the alcohol, and they need it. And it's just a shot. Anyway, this is a tradition now at our house, and we think it should spread. Uh, we noticed a couple other people in our neighborhood adopted this since we started doing it a few years ago, and I'd like to see it go national. 
Halloween, slutty costumes for adults. Halloween at home, kids trick-or-treating. Sugar for them. Shots for their damp, cold parents. It's the humane thing to do. All right. We will talk next week at the top of the show about the election, no doubt. But now we're going to get right to your calls. Hello, Dan. This is a bisexual female in her late 20s calling you from the Midwest. And I have a question about relationships, specifically my boyfriend. We've been dating for just under a year. We're very compatible emotionally, sexually. Things are great. We're very good at communicating. We're very open about our feelings, about we want, what we want, what we do. Um, but there's one area that I struggle with personally, and that's giving critical feedback. Um, it's very difficult for me to not sound like I'm angry at somebody when I'm saying something that is concerning to me regarding their behavior. For instance, my boyfriend does a lot of things that I think guys do. Like he says, you know, I want to eat healthier. I want to work out more and get a better body. And then he will kind of mix those goals and binge on a huge thing of Snickers right in front of me. But he keeps on complaining about it. So, you know, that's his choice not to. Um, He also has issues with some boundaries with friends. He's super nice. He's always giving people rides, um, always doing favors and often not asking for things in return, Um, which, again, is his prerogative. But I have concerns for him, especially because it sets a bad precedent sometimes. And um, issues with money. He tends to not budget well and all these other things. And, you know, we're talking about getting married, of course. The financial things, I think, uh, definitely need to be addressed if we're going to be combining household income. Um, But I just want to know how to start the conversation about these things. You know, I don't want to come off as nagging. I don't want to change him or control him. He's wonderful the way he is. He's such a kind, caring person. I just sometimes wish that he would follow through on the things he wants to say, and I wish that he would watch out for being kind of a doormat. So I don't know if it's the same as what you said before about revealing issues that you want to talk about that are yours. Like, don't deliver it like it's cancer. But I'm not really sure what to do when I'm trying to say, hey, honey, I'm concerned about this thing. Please don't think that I'm trying to control you. I just am looking out for your best interest. Please have the courage of your convictions and your annoyances. You tick off all these things about him that you would like to see changed, that you want to stop, behaviors you would like to see altered. And then you end with sort of, you know, you cross yourself at the end and say, I don't want to control him or change him. And you you do. And the shit you want to change about him is probably some shit that needs to change. Although I'm not privy to the details. I'm not a fly on the wall. One person's he's a doormat and his friends all use him is, you know, perhaps another person's I want all of his attention only on me and I can't share him even a little bit with his friends or anyone else. So maybe you are that kind of controlling, crazy and people sometimes do that to their partners. They isolate them. They cut them off from their their friends. And so maybe everything he does for his friends is entirely appropriate, but you look at it and pathologize in this weird way. Or maybe it is too much. Maybe he has all these people in his life who walk all over him and you want to be the only person in his life who walks all over him. I don't know. I'm not privy to it. I will say this though, that you can't claim to be good at communicating and then say that you have this inability to offer critical feedback. 
if that's something you can't bring yourself to do, you're not good at communicating, or if that's something that whenever you attempt to do it, however cringing and hand-wringing you are about it, however polite, however inoffensively you try to phrase everything, if he reacts as if you're being a controlling bitch and has made you too self-conscious to offer any criticism or to put his shit into perspective, which is sometimes what you rely on another partner for or your partner for, then he may not want to change any of this shit. If he's made you feel too self-conscious to actually offer criticisms, helpful or otherwise, he may not be interested in changing. And you have to ask yourself, do you want to stay with him? If nothing changes, if he's still this Snickers bar scarfing hypocrite on the health and diet front, if he's still terrible with money all his life and he lets his friends walk all over him and they pull his attention from you, can you live with those things? If not, just risk dumping on him about this stuff. Risk just saying your piece. And if he does things that make you feel too self-conscious to be critical in the moment – he makes some terribly pained face in an effort to short-circuit the conversation. Put it in writing. Put it in emails. I'm not allowed to say let's unpack a couple of things in specific because I got emails from readers saying I'm saying that too much and later I'll unpack why I say unpack too much. So let's just examine these two things in a little more detail. The diet and exercise thing. There's a voice in all of our heads that says don't eat the goddamn Snickers bars. And some people will say to a partner, oh, I need to eat better. I need to exercise more. I want to be in better shape and then go eat the Snickers bars. And then when the partner says anything like, are you sure you want to eat those Snickers bars? Because you were just telling me they blow up at the partner for being controlling, for food shaming them, for whatever. And what that person has done in that moment when they say to you, their partner, I need to eat better. And then you speak up when you see them eating terribly is they've externalized that internal voice. They've made that a relationship drama instead of an internal bullshit drama. You don't want to be that voice in his head. You don't, that's not a role that you want to play in the relationship. So I don't think you say to him in a scoldy way, Snickers bar, Snickers bar. I don't think you knock them out of his hand. But you gently say the next day you had a bag of Snickers bars for dinner last night. Maybe we should like have salad tonight for dinner. Maybe we should take it a little easy Tonight, we say we, not you. Because in that moment when he wants that bag of Snickers bars, if you try to come between him and the Snickers bars, it's going to be a disaster. But later, you can help him do what is the smart diet and exercise thing to do. Not to deny yourself any treats all the time or an indulgence or even an overindulgence. Moderation on all things, including moderation. Sometimes you got to binge on whatever, dick, Snickers bars, whatever it is that is your advice. But the smart thing to do is to be conscious of when you eat, how you ate, yesterday's and that may impact how you choose to eat today not to have a penance day but just to balance out healthy non-healthy balance out the binging with not purging but sensible eating and you can help him do that after the fact don't jump between him and the bag of snickers bars and when it comes to the finances here's what you need to say to him we're a team you're bad with money i'm good with money if we combine forces if we combine our incomes if we're going to become a single economic unit after we marry I really think I should be in charge of home finances. If he's as bad at it as you say, he will probably be delighted, probably relieved to have that taken off his hands. I speak as someone who has never and cannot balance a checkbook. That was taken off my hands in my relationship by someone who can barely balance a checkbook but can. And I'm so happy I don't have to worry about that anymore. And I'm willing to concede I'm bad at that sort of stuff. If he can concede it and that can be the role that you play in the relationship, one of the things you take on – Instead of faulting him forever for being shitty at money, credit him with 
ceding that to you and look for the things that you've ceded to him, the things that you're shitty at that he picks up the slack and then be grateful and, and, and identify the mutuality there rather than trying to fix him on this because you will never fix him on this if you can't balance a checkbook because nobody ever could fix me. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I go to a graduate school in California, a, a pretty small one, and there's an administrator at my graduate school who does uh, alumni and employer relations, and I've always found him to be a little bit over-eager, and I, it, he made me uncomfortable. But recently, I was out in the area at a sort of spa-type place where I just decided to go one night, and it's a very intimate venue. And when I was there, I was walking around and all of a sudden I saw him come down the stairs from this very intimate area of the spa and I awkwardly waved hello. And then behind him was a student, a male first-year first student. And when the student saw me, he looked so terrified to have been in this unexpectedly, what he thought was a private location that the two of them were at. And since then, this first-year student, who I have a class with, will not look me in the eye, won't talk to me, just avoids my entire presence. And my sense is that this administrator, this older guy, I think he's gay, I think he might be lonely, and he might see the students as a source of company. And this younger guy... I have known to be a bit of a lady killer. Um, he's gone out with a lot of women in my program, and I didn't think he was gay. And, and what I saw that night, though, was that the two of them were in this intimate spa setting where besides you know, people like me who just go by themselves to relax, pretty much everyone else was a couple. And so I just wondered you know, whether I should do anything about it, try to talk to the guy and let him know that he could, the, the student, I mean, let him know that he didn't have to worry about me, you know, bringing it up or doing anything about it, or if I should just let it go. But the truth is that this administrator, being in his 40s or 50s, taking a young student who's 23 or 24, I did think it might be a little weird. So I've just been thinking about it, and I just don't know if there's anything I should do besides pretend it never happened um, and let them go on with their business. You want to reassure this kid, that this kid, this 23, 24-year-old adult man, that he doesn't have to worry about you bringing this up. So you're going to bring it up to reassure him that he doesn't have to worry about you bringing it up. Just stay the fuck out of it. It is none of your goddamn business. Uh, this administrator uh, isn't a prof. Uh, isn't t uh, one of this kid's teachers. It may seem to be uh, an inappropriate relationship to you because of the age difference. That's kind of an ageist bias, I have to say. Uh, as someone who just turned 50, I'm contractually obligated now by my ARP card to say that. Um, and you don't know what's up with him. You say that he's dated a lot of girls in the program and you think he's kind of a lady killer. Maybe he's a bisexual lady killer. Maybe he's a bisexual gerontophile. Maybe he is struggling to come out and like a lot of young gay guys when they're struggling to come out, they will find an out older guy because older guys tend to be the only ones who are rattling around who are out and open about it. And it's a little more complicated uh, and maybe a little bit more mutual than you seem to think that it is. I know when people look at relationships with big age differences, a 50-year-old college administrator messing around with a 23, 24-year-old college student, uh, that 
the exploitation can only go one way, that the younger person is being exploited by the older person. Sometimes there's no exploitation. Sometimes it is mutual and consensual and affirming and good and a lot of people who are struggling with their sexual orientations or sexual identities who are not fully out yet about whatever they are and he could be bi. Maybe that's what he's struggling to come out about with. Find somebody older, wiser, uh, who's totally through this entire process and they are mentored, sometimes mentored with the dick too but also a little bit mentored. And you can't – and I'm just speculating. It also could be an entirely abusive relationship. But you don't know. I don't know. We can't proceed with the assumption that it's an abusive relationship. All you can do, all we can do is butt the fuck out because this isn't your relationship. Nothing illegal or untoward is going on that you know of and you can't assume that something untoward is going on just because he was at the spa – with this older dude that he met at your college. Butt the fuck out. Hi, Dan. My name is Ariel from Naples, Florida. I'm a um, 31-year-old gay guy. This town is really boring. There's not much to do. I mean, it's amazing. It's beautiful, Naples. But I have a little bit of a dilemma. I haven't had a relationship, like, in a long time. And I do like to go out and have fun and party and have drinks, this and that. You know, but... We don't have any gay places here in Naples, so I'm usually stuck in straight places. My past people that I have sex encounters with, most of them have been like straight, so to speak. It seems like every time I have a crush on someone, it's like straight, or I don't know if it's gay or not. And I mean, with the year, I found that not many gay people come to me. It's only like I'm like stuck in the same thing. I'm thinking about moving, but I just don't want to move because I don't find love here in Naples. So I guess my question would be, um, do you think I should just like not frequent those places anymore and then try to start going to other places? By the way, I don't know if I just told you that there's none, no gay places here in Naples at all. I'm thinking about moving to New York City and saving money right now to do so. Um, but in the meantime, I really would like to be with someone and share time with someone. And sometimes I have friends and this and that, but sometimes it gets a little weird. Miami is an hour and a half away by car. Tampa is two and a half hours away by car. Uh, so you're not nailed to the floor there in Naples. And if you go to those gay places in Miami or in Tampa, if you take weekends, you will meet people also probably from Naples who have made the trek if – there is no option in Naples for gay people to go out into a gay space. There's also virtual gay spaces uh, all over the country. I had a friend who was just in the wilds of Idaho and Montana and was on Scruff and Grinder, and he met the gay dudes in those places. And there's not a gay bar in Idaho or Montana where he was, but he met up with a few guys just socially to go hang out in a bar because they're gay guys in these places where there aren't a lot of gay guys around and they just kind of made a night of it and it was great and he had a great time. They made their own gay bar happen one night in Montana. You can make your own gay bar happen in Naples by getting on Grinder. If it's dates you want and not Insta hookups, you say that and there are other apps. There's Jack, there's Scruff, there's Recon if you're kinky. Get on those things, put a thing up, say you live in Naples, say you're interested in dating, not interested in instant hookups, if that's true, and say, let's go hang out. And you can make your own instant little gay bar happen wherever you go with your hot self. Or you can get in your car and you can drive to Miami and meet some nice Miami dude, openly gay, 
close to your age, wants the same things in life that you want, and then you can run away to Miami and live with him, or he can run away to Naples and live with you. Hi, Dan. I have a question about alcohol consumption and uh, partners who believe that you are consuming too much. I am a artist. I am a beer brewer. I enjoy alcohol, especially beer, and I enjoy drinking it on a daily basis. When uninhibited by my partner, I will generally probably have uh, between one and three drinks a day, usually in the evening or nighttime. I don't believe that I drink to excess. I don't believe that I drink in a way that will ever harm anybody else. I don't drink and drive. I don't get belligerent. I don't drink to the point where I'm incoherent or do silly things or get overly rambunctious or overly excitable. I just enjoy alcohol. And generally speaking, it's beer that I'm drinking. I'm not pounding three glasses of scotch before bed or anything like that. Um, but my, my girlfriend has a really big problem with the frequency at which I drink. And she tells me that her ideal situation would be me only having one or two drinks a month, which I think is insane. And most Americans would agree that that's insane. And I would like to drink as much as I want. So the compromise that she wants us to have is that I can have one drink a day, no more than one drink a day, and it's not allowed to be within two hours of bedtime. And the only exception to this is if we're out at a party or out at a bar or an event where everybody's drinking and it's socially acceptable to be having more than one drink in a row. And a lot of her reasons have to do with friends that have suffered with addiction, friends of hers, or uh, the health risks associated with alcohol. Um, I'm aware of those risks. I'm an adult. I'm 29 years old. And I believe that I can choose to drink and put my liver at risk if I want to. So I'm kind of wondering where you weigh in. So your mommy, sorry, your girlfriend is telling you when and how you can drink and how much and when you can have your drinky before bedtime, before she tucks you in in your footy pajamas. End this relationship. This is bullshit. This is obnoxious, controlling behavior and also incompatibility. You're a beer brewer. You drink one to three beers a day and it doesn't sound like you're a drunk. It doesn't sound like you're a sloppy mess. And you're dating someone who has a problem with alcohol consumption. You're not right for her. She's not right for you. She needs to go find a guy who only has one drink a month and precisely two hours before bedtime. And you need to go find perhaps another brewer, perhaps somebody who also likes to have a drink or two a day, which is not bad for you. I am looking at the Mayo Clinic's website, Guidelines for Moderate Alcohol Use. If you choose to drink alcohol, do so only in moderation. For healthy adults, that means up to one drink a day for women of all ages and men older than age 65, and up to two drinks a day for men ages 65 and younger. So if you're having between one and three and you're averaging out at roughly two a day because of those one beer a day binges of yours, you're drinking in moderation. You have the Mayo Clinic's blessing. Send your girlfriend to the Mayo Clinic's website and tell her to go fuck herself. I'm sorry. Just tell her to go fuck herself. This is irrational controlling behavior. You mentioned that she has a lot of friends who are alcoholics. 
alcoholism runs in my family. Three of my four grandparents were alcoholics. I was raised by a, a parent, my mom, who was deeply traumatized by the alcoholism in her family. She didn't try to stop us from drinking. She just tried to make us conscious drinkers and thoughtful drinkers who were aware of the risks, uh, the hereditary risks also of alcoholism, that propensity in our family, in our history. And so we had to drink consciously. And we are all not alcoholics. All four of her children, not alcoholics, but drinkers, social drinkers, one drink a day, maybe sometimes two drinks a day. Although I haven't had a drink myself in a few days, we're fine. So that she knows alcoholics is not some trump card that she can play to control your behavior because she has an irrational fear attached to your alcohol consumption. And I think it's part irrational fear about your alcohol consumption because of the alcoholics she knows and just controlling behavior looking for a place to land. And in you, she found it with drink, right? Look around the other parts of your relationship. Are there other places where she's trying to control your behavior and control your choices that she probably shouldn't try to control? My money's on yes. And my money's on this relationship is going to end sooner rather than later. And when it does, if we happen to be in the same bar, I will buy you that third beer myself. There are tons of sex researchers and scientists all over the world who are trying to figure out why we do what we do and why we screw, how we screw. And every once in a while, we like to invite one of those researchers on the show to share some of their recent findings with us in a segment we call What You Got. Joining us today, Dr. Brock Bastian, a psychologist and research fellow at the University of New South Wales in Australia. Now, you are not a sex researcher, is that right? No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't class myself as such particularly, no. Um, but there is some sex element here to this study, I understand. So just tell us what you got and we'll get to the sex angle eventually. Sure, no problem. Yeah, so this, the study that uh, we, we ran, well, it was actually three studies. Um, uh, what we're particularly interested in looking at is the, is the role of shared experiences of pain and how they may uh, affect uh, social relations, and particularly when those experiences are, uh, I guess, shared by people in a group. And uh, by a group, I mean two or more individuals. Um, and so we had people across those three studies come into um, come into the lab, um, and we we put them through a painful procedure. And in two of the studies, we got them to put their hands into uh, into ice buckets uh, together and also to perform leg squats together and then afterwards we in one study asked them how bonded they felt to each other and in the second study using that same procedure we asked them well we got them to play an economic game and and to, to basically see whether or not they that those experiences those shared experiences of pain would increase their cooperation on, on you know on that game a tendency to kind of try and maximize the group's outcomes while risking their own personal outcomes mm-hmm. um, and in a, in a in a third study we changed it up and we just got people to eat hot chili hot chili peppers uh, bird's eye chilies in fact compared to uh, another condition we got them to have a you know enjoy a, a sweet lolly together or a sweet so um, you know that, that that last study I guess kind of brings it back into the real world a little bit. And I guess we often share hot chili together in many ways. <laughs> and, and, so, and so what did you find? The people who suffered together cooperated yes. better? Yes, that's right. In that third study, the same thing. So um, people cooperated more after 
sharing an experience of eating chili, just like just like they did after you know putting their hand in, in ice water together or doing leg squats. So they, they they shared experiences of pain compared to very very similar things, but non not in not including pain seem to I, I guess create a, a sense of groupness um, or, or connectedness between people, and and this leads people to see themselves as more bonded, and to therefore uh, you know engage in more cooperative behaviour together. So when you did the similar sorts of activities that didn't involve some degree of pain, people were less cohesive, they were less cooperative, they didn't identify more tightly as a group, but it was the That's right. element of suffering together that had people pulling together? Yeah, I mean I'm not sure I'm not sure you can necessarily call it suffering. I think I think suffering is a kind of a loaded term. I mean people actually don't mind these experiences of pain to be quite frank. They they find them kind of I think suffering is is probably more akin to answering a forty five minute survey, but you know, <laughs> this this is less suffering than that, I would say. But um, I mean, yeah, in, in as much as we call experiences of pain suffering, then yes, it is. It is it is that? Yeah. And so, you know, hearing about this study, and I have to, you know, usually I haven't heard about the study, but yours I did hear about. Yours I read about when it came out. Yeah. Um, we talk a lot about kink on this show, and we talk a lot about BDSM. Sure. And one of the things that sometimes uh, comes up when you talk to kinksters that can seem, if you're not familiar with the kink community, just a little woo-woo is you'll sometimes talk to people who are uh, masochists or subs who, who will say that they feel very bonded to the other people that they may play with, particularly the other subs that they play with. You know, if you're strung up together with somebody and you both get beat, they feel this like real intense, powerful connection. And if you're not kinky and you hear that, you're like, whatever. And you're rolling your eyes and you think that's just a little like new agey, Gooey attached to kink, but your study would seem to bear that out, that these kinksters who say they go to a play party and they get strung up and beat with somebody and they feel really close to that person after, that that's not just new age crap. No, that's right. I, I mean, I, I think it, it, it should play it across all of these different contexts. And I suppose, I mean, really, it, it shouldn't be any different to say sharing any other kind of painful experience with, with other people. Maybe for, you know, many people thinking about sharing pain in the context of sex somehow sort of creates a different level or, or they think it's a qualitatively different experience to other, other kinds of shared pain. But I, I doubt that it is, in fact. And I think that the same processes should very much be at play there. Yeah. So uh, you get to design these studies where you basically at your university torture college students. That's right, yeah. How awesome yeah. a job is that? <laughs> and, and can I apply? Yeah. Can, are, are you retiring anytime soon? If I ever <laughs> want to get out of this advice column, Racket, can I have your gig? Yeah, yeah, no problem. I'll let you know if it ever comes up. <laughs> where can people read your study? Um, well, like they can look up my webpage at UNSW, and it's it's uh, it's there, and it's also um, you know located uh, on the uh, the psychological science website as well. Uh, if you've got access through that channel, um, or just Google Scholar it, and it probably pops up there too. So um, uh, yeah, yeah. So you can certainly certainly get to it. Yeah, and uh, it, it's it's really part of a, I guess a broader a broader interest that myself and my colleagues have, which is is looking at the you know the upside of pain or the positive consequences of pain across quite a few different um, domains, and so in that in that sense we're sort of interested in the fact that people often do see pain as uh, you know only a negative thing, and, and and I think what's also fascinating is when people do enjoy pain that people it, it's kind of a little bit strange for people to think that 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 may be possible, but um, mm -hmm. really there's no there's no such I, I think clear reason why why enjoying pain or even getting getting benefits from pain should be seen you know as as, as sort of somewhat counter-normative or something like that. And is this an obvious thing that's been staring us in the face for a long time? Because people talk about, you know, fraternity hazings, boot camp, you know, mm. get it, all sorts of other sorts of kind of 
rituals that involve pain where the pain isn't inducing, I think, terror because, you know, unless your fraternity yeah. hazing gets out of hand and you die, you know, this is something that you're going to get through and it's not particularly life threatening. Is this yeah, something we, yeah. we could have intuited that these painful experiences create these unit cohesion? Did we already know that? And this study just confirms it? Yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's, you know, largely the case. I mean, it's, it, you know, these, these sort of experimental studies tend to, tend to sort of fly best when they confirm something that we kind of intuitively know, but now we've sort of got the causal evidence for it. Um, so yeah, I mean, really, I think we can draw on those kinds of examples and, and see that in, you know, religious ceremonies or even hazing contexts that, that, that shared experiences of pain do promote that kind of bonding. But I, I guess what we're also interested in showing it in the way that we have is to extend outside of those contexts. So, I mean, we share pain in quite a few different contexts, you know, even just simply when we go to the gym together or, or go for a jog with a friend or, you know, in a, a range of everyday, very normative and common activities, pain is present. And yet we often don't call it pain. We, we prefer, I, I think, to save that that notion of pain for context of harm or, or illness or even suffering or, or more extreme sorts of um, mm -hmm. context. But really, you know, pain is something which is very much a part of our everyday life. And, um, and we can find it in these fairly sort of, you know, mundane sorts of context too and then see that it can have those effects there as well as in these other extreme contexts. And yeah. I think it really illustrates the stigma attached to a lot of BDSM sex practices when you say people go to the gym and we'll jokingly say no pain, no gain. But people go to the gym and they suffer there and it hurts and they're their bodies are stiff and it's painful, uh, you know, and they may uh, they may pull a muscle, they may really harm themselves, but they really struggle and it can be really painful. Uh, and nobody right. thinks they're crazy and sick going to the gym and doing those painful things. Uh, it, it, but we what BDSMers do, we'll call it pain and we'll think, why would anyone do that? Why would you be so yeah. crazy as to seek out that kind of painful experience? Well, maybe for the same reason the people at the gym are. Not that it's going to put you, make you in great shape, but you will feel a part of a group. These, these nut jobs, uh, doing CrossFit where everybody's killing themselves. Yeah. That, I look at CrossFit videos and I see a BDSM club that doesn't have the stigma attached to it because it's not about sex necessarily. Yeah, that's that's right. Well, there's also these tough mutter events that have become very popular, designed by the British SAS forces, which are you know involve going through baths of ice water and getting shocked, and and you know people do that on sort of you know weekend warriors, if you like, go and do these things. And so I, I guess really it, it um I think I think the difference is that probably in the in the BDSM community, people actually admit they like experiences of pain, they enjoy pain, and and whereas in these other communities, people won't say I like pain, they'll say I endure it. And, and maybe we just find that a little bit strange to, for people to, to make that sort of statement or to, to actually say that they get pleasure from their pain. But I mean, I, I think if you look at it, um, uh, you know, if you look at it across a number of different contexts, people actually do get pleasure from pain. I mean, one of the key things about going for a jog is that it actually is painful and, and that's what produces a lot of the positive effects and the pleasure we get at the end of that jog. If it wasn't painful, if it was just like sitting in front of your TV at home, then it wouldn't have the same sorts of effects. But we don't like to say, well, I love that because it was so painful, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think that's probably the only difference um, is just really how it's characterized. Dr. Brock Bastian, psychologist and research fellow at University of New South Wales. Go read the study. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone with us today. No worries, Dan. Hey, Dan. I've listened to you forever. I finally have the guts to call it out. <laughs> um, I know you're not a dog person, so I want to preface this by saying, you know, I definitely am. I've uh, been with my boyfriend for about nine months, and I moved in a couple ago. And he has a big dog that's proven to be kind of a challenge for me. I mean, he bites. He's bitten my sister, the neighbor, this other guy. And when he's not doing that, he's, he's nipping whenever you move too fast. Um, you walk past him the right way, he, he snaps. 
my boyfriend and I definitely have different views on how to handle it. He's, he's not been neutered. He's not socialized. He's got pack issues. So I know, I know I have the right to be at least somewhat upset by that. And I know it's at least workable because it can be trained out of him. But here's something I don't know if I have the right to be like weirded out by it. I'm kind of grossed out by it. Um, my boyfriend lets his dog lick him. And I don't mean it's like in a sexual way or a creepy way, but it's definitely not the normal couple licks on the hand or face like when a dog's greeting you. It's, it's, it's excessive. He literally lets the dog tongue bathe him. And like thoroughly too, like his back, his, his legs, his feet, his chest, just basically anywhere not covered by underwear. He'll just let the dog uh, lick him. <laughs> and, and when he thinks the dog's getting done, he'll roll up his pants, legs higher, spread his toes. And, um, and then the dog will just keep licking him throughout the course of watching a movie or, or whatever. And I, I mentioned to him, I'm like, nobody else I know lets their dog do that. And his rebuttal is always, oh, it makes him happy or he's a weird dog, right? So, you know, a bunch of other things make dogs happy that we don't let them do because it doesn't make for good pet behavior, like jumping up on counters, sniffing crotches, all that stuff. So I think what it comes down to is my boyfriend actually just likes it. And he knows I think it's gross, but I don't know if I have much ground to stand on besides that. What would you say if Terry all of a sudden was getting tongue-bathed by a dog? Honestly, here's what I was thinking halfway through your call. I know this really nice artist and beer brewer that I could fix you up with. He's not single right now, but he will be by the end of this show, if I have anything to say about it. And I think you should date him because his vice is not to be tongue-bathed by a dog, but to have a couple of beers at the end of the day, and it's what he loves, it's what he does. Maybe you should date him instead. Uh, you're entirely too reasonable about this. I would have drawn a dark line and put my foot down and called the question and whatever else you want. I would have forced him to put the dog into a, a training class. The dog is biting and nipping. It is lazy owner bullshit not to do something about that. And it puts the dog at risk because when the dog bites the wrong kid, the wrong person, there will be an effort to have the dog put down. So by not neutering his dog, by not training his dog, by not correcting this problem, he's not being a kind and indulgent dog owner. He is being a dog owner who's putting his dog at risk of execution, right? The dog will eventually bite the face off a toddler who moves wrong through the room. Maybe your toddler, if you're fool enough to breed with this person. As for the tongue baths, how did you not run screaming from the room the first time that happened? How did you not look at that and go, yeah, I'm never putting my mouth on that again. Yuck. Uh, just yuck. You go to bed with somebody, you're going to smell them, you're going to taste them, you're going to lick them yourself and your tongue should have priority and first access. But he comes to bed covered in dog spit? Dog saliva? Ugh. And for your boyfriend at the end of this doggy tongue bath, after he's hiked his pants higher, after he's spread his toes, but of course, nothing in the underwear area, at least when there are witnesses, nothing in the underwear stays on when his girlfriend's home. After all that, your boyfriend has the nerve to say, it's a weird dog. It's a weird boy. It's a weird boyfriend. And if I were you, I would run screaming into the arms of the very sweet, recently pussy whipped, 
Brewer and get the hell away from the man with the inappropriate relationship with the poorly socialized dog. Hi, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old female, and I've been with my boyfriend off and on for about two years. He was over at my apartment recently, and we were a few drinks deep when I asked if I could use his laptop to look something up. I'd like to note that I'm not a jealous person, and I've never snooped through his stuff before. When I sat down, I playfully said, I'm going to check your browser history. In my head, I was thinking I would discover some porn and find out more in-depth what he's into, or maybe just some silly websites or something else relatively harmless. But he got really mad, ran over, called me a psycho, and slammed his laptop closed. We haven't spoken about it since, but it's still really bothering me. Now I feel like he's hiding something, and I'm not sure how to bring it up without seeming crazy or knowing if I'm getting the truth. What do you suggest I do? There are two possible explanations. There's something in his browser history there was that day that was so disturbing, so potentially prejudicial that he had to throw himself across the room and slam that laptop shut and and, and he felt angry and and potentially exposed and even violated by the suggestion that you might look at that browser history and learn X, Y, and Z about him. Or he's had girlfriends in the past who've done the same thing, who've looked at his browser history and gone completely psycho bullshit on him about normal, everyday, average porn sites, things that you indicate wouldn't have bothered you, things that you said that you would have been happy to like learn a bit more about his inner erotic life and his imagination and what turns him on and his fantasies. He may have had other girlfriends in the past who went on the big snoop, who went on the hunt to find that shit to slam him about it, who found that shit and then blew up at him. And he was reacting not in the moment to you, but in that moment to them or to that girl who in the past porn shamed him, smut shamed him, smut shaming a lot of men face that, I think. Smut shamed him uh, and, and blew up at him about his fantasies. And he may still feel really hurt. One or the other. That's my hunch. It's one or the other. So if I were you, if this had happened to me, what I would say to him is in an email, so as not to accidentally cause another explosive reaction in the moment, just in an email say, if there's something on there you didn't want me to see or you don't think that – you know, that was private. I apologize. I was just joking. Um, if in the past other girlfriends have blown up when they've found your porn stash or looked at what you were looking at, uh, and, and hurt you, that wasn't my intent. And I'm not that girlfriend. And I wouldn't react that way. Cause if you look at porn, uh, even porn, that's about a different type of person than I am. That's fine. One person can't be all things to another person sexually. And if you explore through porn, some things that I'm not able to offer you, that's fine. And just, I'll never look again, but whatever it was, I apologize. And then let it rest. And then if he responds, you can have a little convo about it. And if he doesn't respond, just let it go and pray he isn't watching videos of guys being tongue bathed by their dogs. I'm just going to lean on the cliche here. I'm about to introduce a man who really needs no introduction. RuPaul, RuPaul Charles, is the host of Drag Race on Logo. He's a supermodel of the world. He's been a public figure and a celebrity and a drag queen and just a singular presence on the pop culture scene for more than 25 years. Uh, and he jumped on the phone with us today to talk about his career, talk about the next season of Drag Race, to talk about his new podcast that he's recording with Michelle Visage. And he also took a couple of questions with us. Here's Rue and me chatting. Hey, Rue, thank you so much for jumping on the phone with us today. It's my pleasure, Dan. How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm, uh, you know, we're not filming at this very moment, so I get to 
kind of sort of eat whatever I want to eat. <laughs> and work on a new project, which is the What's the Tea podcast that you're now doing with Michelle Visage, your, I don't know, accomplice, partner in crime, co-conspirator. Tell us about the podcast. <laughs> I like to call her my, my psychic. Not my sidekick, my psychic. You guys do have a rapport that seems like a psychic connection. What's the podcast about? It's about everything, whatever we want to talk about. You know, we have had this rapport for years and years. So, you know, listeners get a chance to uh, sort of be a fly on the wall of our conversation. And these are conversations Michelle and I would be having, even if there wasn't, (laughs) even if it wasn't being recorded. (laughs) So the genius thing is you found a way to monetize what you'd be doing anyway by making it into a show. Listen, I think that is what, that is the way of the world. I think anybody listening, if they can find a way to do that, then you, you are, you've got a winner on your hands. Find a way to make a living doing what you're going to do anyway and what you love. Absolutely. So if you love giving head, just find a way to get paid for that. Listen, I know lots of people put several kids through college by giving head. <laughs> yeah, I've met, I, I know a few of them too. I have friends who are sex workers. Um, so I've never actually heard you talk about the genesis quickly of of Drag Race, of whose idea that was, where that came from. Was it your idea or did someone bring that to you? Were you skeptical when it was first pitched? Well, I've been working with World of Wonder, the company that pr- produces the show for, oh God, since 1985. And we have been friends and we were family. And so for many years, they wanted me to do a reality show, but I wasn't. I wasn't keen on it because I thought at that time, reality shows were just too mean spirited. So finally I relented after it felt like it was time and that the hostility in the air after the Bush era was settled down a bit. Um, um, they approached me with this idea for, for drag race and drag race was the brainchild of Tom Campbell, who I've also worked with for many years and, know for many years through World of Wonder. So it was his idea, but uh, World of Wonder had been after me for many years to do one. It's amazing. I'm I'm such a fan of the show for so many different reasons. First of all, because, you know, I did drag for years, for about 10 years. Uh, I, I Or drag was done to me, I should say, because I couldn't, you know, you've seen me dressed up as a guy. I can barely pick out guy clothes. I had friends who were drag queens who would dress me up and paint my face and push me on stage where I could be funny. And, you know, I was a performer, but I was I, I don't feel like I can claim the mantle of drag queen because I actually couldn't style a wig or paint my face or anyone else's. But I did drag for 10 years, and it always was my sense that the, in every city there was this really sort of fertile, interesting, uh, sometimes really transgressive drag scene, but they existed independently in all these different places like Atlanta and Chicago and San Francisco and Seattle and New York. But there was really no kind of national platform for all of these local scenes until Drag Race came along. And then suddenly you're seeing queens from New York, queens from Atlanta, queens from New Orleans, queens from Seattle. We've had Jinx and uh, Bendela Creme on the show in the last two seasons. And it's really created this national sort of platform, place, uh, stage for what had been this kind of localized, uh, kind of cutoff Galapagos Island sort of drag culture in this country. Mm-hmm. And that's so – did you see that coming? I mean you could have anticipated doing this that it would be – you'd be in what, your seventh or eighth season now? And it would have such an impact. Yeah, we're starting our seventh season in January. But, you know, it's interesting as you're saying that. I, it occurred to me that drag race has become sort of the Airbnb or Uber of drag, where uh-huh. it is the connector. It's that phone app that 
that connects all these people together. Something that was that already existed, but um, that's exactly what the show is. And you know what else I think? And I'm always cons- I, I talk about this a lot. I go to colleges. I talk. Sometimes Drag Race comes up, and I always say, just like if you want to set aside the drag, which you know some idiots still have a problem with, and they can go fuck themselves, as far as I'm concerned. And you just look at the show. You want to take this political look at the show. It's the only place you can go on TV where you can see poor working class gay men, gay men of color, gay men who are not uh, native English speakers, gay men who've been to prison, where you get sort of not just white middle class gay men on modern families swanning around in their lovely homes. And there are some, of course, white middle class gay men with lovely homes. and They deserve representation too. But you see the whole kind of gamut of the gay experience or a part of it that you never ever see on TV that's never shown or portrayed. And I think that's really important politically. Oh my God, it's so brilliant and so important. And it's so important for young people who are in the middle of nowhere. You know, uh, my partner at a ranch in Wyoming and we get logo out there. And it's so amazing. We're sitting on this ranch in the middle of nowhere watching the show where they're talking about everything. Everything is being talked about on this show and freely and without judgment. And it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Can you imagine? I, you know, I'm in my 50s. But can you imagine what that would have been like to to see that when I was a kid. The closest thing I came to that when I was a kid was, was Monty Python was the closest I came to that. For a lot of kids in the 90s, you were that. You were, I love it. You were the queen on TV and you gave people a glimpse into this world where you could be however fierce or fabulous or however different you were, however individualistic you were, and create a life for yourself and find, you know, and, and find acceptance and find not just acceptance but praise, adulation, that you could make a mark. Well, the best part is I get to pay the mortgage and I get to do whatever the hell I want, which is uh, which is pretty cool. <laughs> okay. I, I want to talk about the, the, this ranch in Wyoming. You, your long-term partner, you, you live in – he lives – you guys live in a, on a ranch uh, part of the time in Wyoming on 50,000 acres. Are you snuck onto this ranch in a brink strap? How the hell do you get in and out of <laughs> Wyoming in one piece? Is it more accepting a place than people might – No, I wouldn't say it's accepting or anything. It's just there's not a lot of people there, so you don't really run into a lot of people. It's just you you guys and the Cheney family. (laughs) Well, yes, and, and, you know, there are lots of billionaires there for some reason, I think because of the tax break. In general, it's the least populated state in the Union, so there's not a lot of people there, so you get a lot of solitude. They're, they're, They're not the warmest people in the world. The Cheneys. Now, marriage equality marriage equality has just come to Wyoming, shoved down the state's throat by the Supreme Court. You and your partner have any plans to marry, or are you not the marrying kinds? We're really not the marrying kind. Uh, we don't really stand on ceremony. Probably not. So uh, you and Michelle, you're not giving sex advice on your show. Are you taking calls or anything like that? No, we, we don't take calls. We do talk about sex, and we talk, we talk about our experiences and observations of sex. Advice, I don't know. Um, advice is a tough one, you know? Oh, no. No, it's not. It's really easy. If I could do it, any motherfucker can do it. <laughs> I mean, literally people have said to me, for so ever since I started writing Savage Love, who do you think you are? What qualifications do you have? And I'm like, well, I actually te- technically I have no qualifications. But when you look up advice in the dictionary, all it fucking says is opinion about what could or should be done. So the only qualification you need to give advice is some fool was dumb enough to ask you for your opinion. Uh, and so I, I wanted to invite you to play the sex advice game with me today and just give some advice because really anybody can do it. I do it. 
You give tons of advice on the show. You're constantly giving professional advice, relationship advice, grow the fuck up advice to the queens on <laughs> Drag Race. And a lot of them need that. Uh, so th- I don't see why you can't uh, field a few calls with me today while I've got you on the phone. Well, I, the thing is, I, I would love to, and I, I'll play along. But I think the issue, though, is to give advice about sex, I think you probably have to be at least good at it. I don't know if I've ever been really good at it. I, so. don't, be- I don't believe that. That's false <laughs> modesty. Somebody doesn't move through the world or move through a club like you do, looking like you do, just like blazing the trails you blaze with and is also then inept at sex. I think that that kind of <laughs> dick swingy confidence, hip swinging, boob swinging confidence that is bundled up with good and bad. I just refuse to believe that the RuPaul I was watching on TV when I was a young person, uh, not that I'm that much younger than you, but when I was like in college <laughs> and watching you on TV, I can't believe that that guy t- couldn't just peel the bark off somebody, couldn't suck their kidneys out through his dick. Well, I got to say, you know, I am Scorpio and I'm, I'm very intense. So that, that might count for something. Okay, let's take a couple of calls. Hi, Dan. I am a 32-year-old female. I met a man online and he looked to be very attractive, very handsome. And we talked on the phone for nearly a month before we met. And I was feeling very cautiously optimistic that this could be somebody that I could potentially really develop feelings for. So I met this gentleman the other day and he does not look like his pictures. <laughs> he's he's not completely unattractive, but he's just not someone that I would look at on the street and think, I want to go talk to that person. He's not particularly attractive to me. But we had dinner and we had a nice time and he still is very funny very smart. This is my question. Am I being really silly? Should I try to push past this whole superficial thing and give this a go? Because clearly, like, our personalities really mesh and he seems like a great person. Or do I need to accept that if I'm not attracted to him, then I'm not attracted to him? All right. This woman thinks that, you know, she met this guy. He doesn't look like his pictures. And that happens all the time with internet dating. And she's not as physically attracted to him, but she thinks he's a great guy. Should she give him a chance or is that crappy? I don't think it's crappy. I think that, um, I should, first of all, she sounds like a lovely person. I, I feel like she is a conscientious, lovely person because I think everybody who goes on the internet to date knows that you're not going to get the picture they're showing is not who they are. And I don't care. It's very rare that it comes up that way. But the fact that she, you know, has a conscience about it and is, you know, I think that's a very sweet thing. But um, no, I, I would say no. And also, I did want to talk about the whole fairy tale versus reality. And so much, so many of us mix the two so often, and that's what confuses us. We all have been sold this idea that, you know, that sort of that life would be like Nancy Myers movie or a Diane Warren song where without you, I'm nothing, and then there's going to be birds and music playing. You know, I've been in a relationship for 20 years, and um, it's not really like that. Mixing up fantasy world with the reality world of everyday life with a human being and what you have to negotiate. So, But my vote is, you know, she just trust her instinct on this one. Trust your instinct. Give him a chance. Well, you can give him a chance, but, but no, I think that her first instinct is that she, she's not attracted to him. I think she should go with that. 
Oh, I would I would disagree. Actually, um, if I may. Uh, no, just, tell me. I want to hear. Well, just because, you know, I'm sure if you asked him, if we could get him in the room and said, you know, she's just not physically attracted to you, but she really likes you. Would you like her to give you a chance? Would you like her to hang out with you and date you? Even with this uh, given and this out on the open that, you know, you just don't do it for her physically. But, you know, who knows? Maybe something, a spark could land and the fire could grow. And he'd probably say, yes, give me a chance. Right. He'd probably want yeah. that opportunity to see if he couldn't you know, spark a, a physical attraction. And sometimes that comes later, but that's true. That's true. But I, you know, but she's worried that if she, you know, if you absolutely positively know that this cannot happen, you would never be physically into this person that that could never grow. Then it is cruel to string that person along just because you like their company. If what they want is romance and you're sure that's never going to happen. And you're just enjoying their company under kind of false pretenses, allowing them to assume something that's not true, that they have an op, they have a chance. But if she thinks, you know, call her, you're listening. If you think, that there is even, you know, a 10% chance or a 15% chance that some, you know, a physical attraction for you in the past has kicked in after an emotional attraction was established. Why not give them a chance? Hey, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, that, that is very possible. And in my opinion, it's just based on broad strokes and trusting your instinct and the, and the fact that he started the relationship with sort of some deception. And, and of course, given that's what most people online are doing, given um, uh, and people do that offline too. You know, you meet somebody in a bar or a club, even though you can you can suss them out physically, they're putting their best foot forward. They're kind of presenting this lie Potemkin village version of themselves. You know, they're they're putting on an act. They're playing up their best qualities. They're t- well turned out because they went out. Uh, so you know, just meeting somebody face to face doesn't mean you're also not encountering somebody who's misrepresenting a little bit. I, I agree with that. Although you do have a you have a better chance that getting what their energy is like in a club or when you, when you see them in person online, it's a, it's a completely different storyline where, you know, it's, it's very strange that, that way. But, um, there have been people who initially I wasn't attracted to, but somehow because of something that they do or some other thing, uh, it makes me very attracted to them. And, and sometimes someone is so clever that I have a friend who I, who lives in Philadelphia who he is so clever. Every time he says something clever online or whatever on the phone, I get a little bit aroused because I know he's so smart and clever. I love that. I love that so much. You know, how, how ironic is this? Here you are saying that in the past you've like become attracted to people that you weren't attracted to at first after you got to know them better. And yet yeah. you, you advised her not to waste this guy's time and to cut him loose. And I advised her to give him a chance, even though I've never had that experience. I have never become attracted to somebody after getting to know them. My attraction's either yeah. there or not there at the start. It has never uh, sort of been sparked by anything. And yet I advised her to give him a chance, even though that doesn't jive with my experience. And you advised her not to give him a chance, even though it contradicts your experience. Well, but I tell you, the difference between those two is, is this, is that she knows him vaguely sort of from online. But a person who has actually spent time with and really gotten to know them, that's where – I guess it's not really that different. I guess it's not that different. I don't mm-hmm. know. I just feel like the online thing – I don't know. I think I put the online thing in a whole different – category, meeting someone online. You've been with your partner for 20 years. I've been with my partner for 20 years. My entire dating life uh, preceded internet dating, preceded, you know, it all came, I was done. I had had musical chairs. I was sitting when that music restarted with like internet dating and online profiles and personals and meeting people this way and OkCupid and everything else. Uh, 
do you look on that whole world the way young people date, the young gay people that are around you and just are, are baffled by it, like grinder and all this shit? I, I, I am baffled by it because I, I've always been a very, very, very sensitive person. And I, I get worded out just by people, a bunch of people in the room. I, I am an introvert who's masquerading as an extrovert. So I can fake it for a little while, but then I, I have to really feel you and feel that um, this is someplace that I really want to be, you know? So, um, you know, I, you know, a confession, I don't think I've ever told anybody this. It really upsets me when I see people walking down the street, looking at their phones. And, and I think it has to do with, it, it presses this button in me uh, from childhood where I'm on a planet. I, I, I feel like I, I'm uh, an alien on a planet where of zombies, where nobody is, awake and there's mm-hmm. no consciousness like no consciousness so so um just actually there was your question is um I, I am baffled by the connection with with people and their machines and stuff i, I like to feel people i like to feel things i want to be present hey dan i'm a 24 year old gay guy living in new england and i'm calling you because i want your opinion on something that's been bothering me a little bit lately i seem to develop an obsession with men's feet it started as an attraction to men wearing low-cut white ankle socks with the gray heel and toe. Very specific, I know, um, but that's what it was. Then I feel like it's progressed to an attraction to men's ankles as a general thing. But now, these days, I find myself constantly curious about what a man's foot looks like the moment that I meet him. I wouldn't say it's a fetish or it doesn't feel like one because I don't want to lick them or suck on them or like do things to them in that way. Um, but at the same time, it does feel sexualized in nature because it can be a huge turnoff for me. Like the second toe is on the big toe or the nail bed is weird or the nail is colored or there's too much people in the pinky or the, the calluses. I can get really distracted and pretty much become completely unattractive to the person um, a lot of the time. And I've had this happen where I meet someone I'm like, oh my God, you're awesome. And then I look down and they're wearing sandals. I'm like, Jesus Christ, this is awful. And I just totally shut you down. I thought it was kind of funny at first and something I would joke about with some friends, but after recently spending with that, like 30 minutes looking through a recent uh, prospect, Facebook photos or pictures of that show, his feet, <laughs> I'm a little concerned. And I'm wondering if you've heard of something like this before, is this still considered a fetish, even though it doesn't really line up with traditional fetish behavior or the things you would see that people have felt fetishes on TV or in, you know, on pornography do? Um, is it like developing fetish and I'll be wanting to suck toes in the future and this is something that I'll come to be more engrossed with or I, I, I really don't know. So I just kind of want, want your thoughts on it. I feel like I have to ask if you have any fetishes yourself and you don't have to answer that question. Um, I, I probably do, but I don't even see them as fetishes. I think, it, uh, you know, I'm in a human body and there are certain things that I'm attracted to, but I don't even think of them as fetishes. Uh, and then that's what, what, that's the same thing with this caller too. I think it's like, um, there are certain songs, there are certain singers, there are certain voices that I'm just attracted to. I do have fetishes. Um, probably um, there are certain things I love on uh, on on people, you know, um, like the back of of, of the neck, and um, you know, stuff like that. Unless they were sort of harmful, where I was actually hurting someone. But even that's questionable because if it's consensual, it should be fun. If it's consensual. There's no harm. 
Uh, you know, yeah. if you're if you're into you know tits of a certain Michelle Visage size tits, if you're into pretty faces, you can usually suss that out immediately. But if you have a foot fetish, and it seems to be this guy's question, he is, uh, clearly has a growing, budding, developing foot fetish. And how does he ascertain if somebody's feet are hot when they're just standing there in front of him wearing socks and shoes? At what point can he ask that question? Show me your feet. Lady Bunny has a joke about about the step beyond fisting, which is uh, uh, kick fucking. Ah, <laughs> just because you can do something with your ass doesn't mean you should. Just because you can get something <laughs> into your ass, I don't know. Every once in a while, you, I go online to look at porn just for research, and you see some guy sitting on a traffic cone, and you just think, "Yeah, <laughs> no, no." Even if you can, it's amazing that you can do that to your ass. But should you do that to your ass? That's the question. <laughs> right, right, right. But could you live with yourself? Knowing that you you that you never try doing it, I can know, I can Ru, I can I can go to the grave knowing I never sat down on a traffic cone, completely content. Right? Hmm, is this feet taken? <laughs> now this guy, you know, he says that the feet turn him off if they have any flaws. So should he just date a guy until he sees him uh, in sandals? Should he move to Key West where everyone's in flip flops all the time? What's your advice from your position of authority and wisdom? My advice, my advice is I would loosen the reins a little bit. I think um, foot fetish, I love beautiful feet too, but it, I bet that he could meet someone whose feet are not uh, up to his standards and they could still blow him away with, with other things, you know. It's not just all about the feet. And you could, you could, you could love beautiful feet right, right on. But I think that, um, it, you know, like we talked about this 20 years thing when you've been in a relationship. There are so many things that, happen in the course of a long relationship it has nothing to do with, you know, the hotness here or the size of, you know, your earlobes or things like that. Or how far they you can know, get the traffic cone up their butts. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and there, there's that also that idea that we, we humans, especially in our, our culture, think that one person is going to be want everything for us, like, like a, like a Walmart where there's a, a <laughs> hardware department. There's a hardware department, there's an automotive department, you know, lingerie. Groceries. Bedding. Yeah. And, and it's not it's, true. In my experience, it's not true. It's not true. Yeah, no. it's actually you know? a very dangerous myth that one person can be all things emotionally, sexually, intimately for another person because it, 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 it leads people to be disappointed in their relationships and all of them yeah. because they believe that yeah. this person should exist to fulfill all of their needs, be their best friend, the best sex partner. Uh, you know, the best this, the best that, be everything, be their fucking Walmart. That's a brilliant way of putting it. And one person can't be your fucking Walmart. And when you stop expecting that of them, you'll be happier in that relationship, which Absolutely. for this caller, perhaps the application is, you know, if you meet a guy who's everything you want, who's really nice, who's kind, who you're attracted to, but his feet are imperfect. Maybe you live with that. And maybe he lets you every once in a while fondle the feet of someone else who happens to have perfect feet. Because it would be stupid to throw away a guy who's a great partner for you in every other respect. Not everything, not your Walmart. No one's your Walmart because there's a flaw in his left foot. Right. When there's, you know, especially if he doesn't demand that you never, you know, touch another foot for as long as you live because you're with him and he's supposed to be all feet to you forever. So really quickly, thank you for uh, diving into the advice game. Um, Before we let you go, uh, where can people find What's the Tea? Your new podcast? Yes, it's it's on iTunes and it's on Stitcher. Uh, All you have to search is RuPaul and podcast. It pops right up. And it's What's the T with T spelled T-E-E uh, with Michelle Visage. If you love Ru and Michelle bantering together on Drag Race, you will love the podcast. And anything you can tell us about the upcoming season of Drag Race, it's already filmed, right? 
It's already filmed, and it is so amazing. In fact, um, I'm just getting notes now from the first show, and they are blown away. It, it's it's crazy. It's it's amazing how we keep topping ourselves with this show, but I, we talked about this a little bit. These are the most amazing people on the planet. These kids who have... Who have Fought our social, you know, uh, you know, judgment against doing it. Against all odds, they've become their own person, and it's fascinating to watch. Still, after all these years, and anybody who's actually paid attention to a drag scene in any city in this Galapagos Islands, you know, chain of drag queen sort of uh, ecosystems, you see the ferment and the inventiveness that people come out week yes. after week, topping themselves, topping each other, topping what they've seen, and so you don't see the same old shit all the time, and that really comes across in the show. So. I'm not surprised that Drag Race keeps topping previous seasons because, you know, I've been paying attention to the drag scene here in Seattle for a long time and in other cities, and that's what queens do. Queens bust out some new shit every fucking week, every year. They're always topping themselves. They're so inventive and creative, and it's so much fun to fucking watch. Yes, absolutely. I'm a a fan. I've always been a fan, and I love it on so many different levels because, you know, the idea of deconstructing what – a human identity is and, and having fun with it. That's, that's the most important, most political thing in the world is, is, is breaking that fourth wall of who we think we are. And, and, and that's where the party begins. RuPaul, watch Drag Race. New season starts January on Logo. And check out his new podcast, What's the Tea, with Michelle Visage. Uh, just Google RuPaul Drag Race pops right up. It's at Stitcher and iTunes. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today, Ru. It was such an honor and a pleasure to get to talk with you at such length about the show and everything else. Thank you. The pleasure's all mine. Hey, Dan. 42-year-old woman here, gay woman on the East Coast. So uh, I have an ethical question about a soccer mom friend of mine who has a 7-year-old daughter who she thinks is gay. She says that she and her husband are totally okay with it, um, that, you know, if she wants to marry a girl, that's fine, and that's really great, but she wants her daughter to not tell anybody else. On the one hand, I get it. The kids in Catholic school, because the school systems here are awful, and that could be create problems. But on the other hand, I'm thinking that she's sort of perpetuating the internalized homophobia. If she had a daughter who was, say, half African-American but looked white, tell her daughter just because some people don't like African-American people that she should act white and be white and not tell anybody that she was half African-American. Like, but I can't say anything because I'm 42 and I have no kids. That gives me zero fucking credibility with anybody who's got kids. And also, like they say, you know, not my circus, not my monkeys. But at the same time, I feel really sorry for this little girl. I mean, she's going to be, she's being told to be in the closet. And then my friend says, oh, well, you know, she, the little girl, she could change her mind or, you know, but Dan, the kid's gay. Does she need to keep it under her hat? Does she need to hide it from her friends just because there are some people out there who don't like gay girls and there are some people out there who don't like half African-American people either? Let me know. Tried to call you, missed you, because there's this one detail I really wanted to nail down. It sounds like this seven-year-old hasn't identified herself as anything yet. You never say that the seven-year-old said that she was a lesbian, came out to her parents as gay. You're just a bunch of adults milling around looking at this kid who must be gender nonconforming in a way that screams dyke and going, oh, lesbian, and gaming out the next decade of this kid's life. Back the fuck off. And mom, back the fuck off. Let the kid be the kid. Let the kid 
come out when she's ready to come out. It's fine for mom to worry about the future. It's fine for mom to be concerned about her kid when her kid comes out. Luckily that's some years away and the pace of social change in this country right now around queer issues is pretty rapid. That doesn't mean every grade school, every high school, every middle school in the country is some sort of paradise for queer kids. They are often not even in queer tolerant and queer celebratory places. Middle school and high school can still be pretty homophobic, transphobic, dyke phobic, gender nonconforming phobic in every possible way. So a parent I don't think is being grotesquely homophobic when they say to their kid, let's roll this out in a way that doesn't draw a lot of tremendous negative attention toward you. You know, some kids can handle it. Some kids want to go sit in front of a microphone at a congressional hearing and talk about their families and be out themselves at very young ages. And other kids aren't ready for that and may never be ready for that. The congressional testimony piece of it, the coming out, all queer people should be ready for that at some point, but it has to be driven by the kid. So I would urge all of the adults standing around at soccer practice, looking at the little dyke to shut the fuck up and back the fuck off and let that kid be a kid and stop scrutinizing her so heavily. Stop drawing attention to her that she may not be ready to handle by all of you staring at her and talking about how you're going to handle it when she comes out. We need to make the world a safer place for gender nonconforming kids. We really do. You know, when we talk about gay bashings uh, in schools and you look at the videos that go up of these gay bashings, when you look at the interviews of these kids who are being gay bashed, it's always feminine boys and masculine girls. There is this gender policing. There is this violent response to anybody who's gender nonconforming. We need to make the world a safer place for boys who aren't boyish boys and girls who aren't girly girls, whether they're queer or not when they grow up. There are effeminate straight men. There are masculine straight women. A lot of those feminist straight men were victims of homophobic bullying. A lot of those masculine women were victims of homophobic bullying also. A lot of those straight masculine women were victims of homophobic bullying as well. So work on that. Stop gaming out when this kid says she's a dyke and just work on making sure that the kids around her, that the school that she's in, that the community that you're in allows children to be whoever the fuck they are and to define themselves for themselves when they're ready to define themselves. That doesn't mean a parent can't look at their obviously queer kid and go, hmm, I've got a queer kid. What does that mean for the future? That may mean moving to a better place. That may mean finding a school when it's high school time or middle school time that has anti-bullying policies, that has a GSA, that's going to be a good, safe, safer place for a queer kid than, say, some shitty Catholic school or some fundy Christian psycho bullshit school. But beyond that, there's no need to hurry this process along. Let the kid relax. Let the kid be the little soccer ball nailing bull dagger that she appears to be and stop fretting. Oh, also that expression you used, not my circus, not my monkeys. I love that. That's genius. I'm going to steal it. Hey, Dan. I'm a 21-year-old gay male. Um, I have a friend, really, really hot, and she dated a really good friend of mine, and they broke up. It was really horrible, yada, yada. She was really hurt, but he seemed totally uh, cool with it. He also seemed really sexually into her, um, according to her. And he's had sex with um, a few other women. But I seem to be getting a really strong gay vibe. Not even uh, not even bisexual, just like straight up 
this guy's a homosexual, he likes them, but whatever. And I really kind of want to fuck him. He's been flirting with um, one of my other friends who's a girl, but every time they get alone, he seems to be turned off. He doesn't want anything to do with her, really. But he never tries anything on her. He never holds her hand or anything like that. The only time he ever flirts with her openly or anything is when he's in public. So I don't know if that's just me looking really way too far into it. I don't know if it's me just being a gay and everybody. But how and what should I do? You told him that if he was gay or bi, that that was fine and you could keep a secret and he could come out to you. But you just don't say what he said in response to that. Okay, so basically I just, you know, because I, I thought that he was gay or bi or whatever for a really long time. So I said that to him and then he said, oh, I'm not, but you'll be the first to know if I am, if I ever decide to be. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That right? is, that is a, that is a crazy answer to that question. Cause you are, or you aren't, uh, I would have pivoted I know. from that response. Had that been me having that conversation with him, even at your age, I would have looked at him and said, what do you masturbate about? What do you masturbate about? What do you think about when you're jacking off? Um, cause that's, you know, there's the fact of what you're thinking about when you're jacking off. And then there's the squish of how you identify and whether you're ready to be out yet. Uh, and with the goods you have on him now with this, you know, he makes a very big show of flirting with this girl or with girls in public and shuts down in private, clearly no interest in private, uh, in girls. Um, but he wants to be perceived as straight. That's probably what's going on. So he makes a big show of flirting with girls. And then an answer like that, not a definitive, I'm not gay or bi, but, uh, I'll let you know, you'll, I'll send you a telegram. I'm not right now, but who knows what could happen. And I could have a dick in my ass in five minutes. Oh, I'd be so mad if the dick in his ass was not mine. <laughs> How old is he, if you don't mind my asking? You're 21? Yeah, I'm 21. Uh, he's just turned 21. Um, he comes from, he went to a Catholic elementary school. Like a, I don't, because it wasn't a high school. It was like a Catholic elementary school. Mm -hmm. His mother is in the church choir. I'm going to give you permission to do something that's age-specific and situation-specific. I'm not one of those guys who thinks every hot straight guy is secretly gay, and I don't approve of people trying to get into the pants, gay guys trying to get into the pants of straight male friends, acquaintances, coworkers, just because they're hot and they want them, and you convince yourself that they must be gay too, uh, which more and more gay people seem to do these days because a guy's not homophobic. Oh, that means he must be gay, right? No. like We wanted there to be not homophobic straight guys in the world. We don't repay that growth on their part by assuming we can get with them. We just have to like take them at their word that they're straight. But when someone's young in college, not yet out, often it is – that first relationship or that first gay person kind of hitting on them or expressing an interest that prompts them to think about it, to that incentivizes coming out that calls the question. So at your age, in your circumstance, I don't think it's inappropriate for you to hit on this guy if you think he's gay. Right. Well, and see, that that's the thing. Like, you know, I'll talk to him, you know, because we're friends and I'll, you know, I'll make some kind of comments and like flirt with him and like, I'll even cuddle with him sometimes. And I played with his nipple once and he was totally okay with it. Gay, 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 you know, gay, like gay, 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 gay. Straight guys are you. not That's okay with gay men playing with their nipples and straight guys don't cuddle with their gay male friends. La, 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 la. Thank you. That's exactly what I was saying. Like the whole time, because I keep talking to my other friends about this, you know, because I have the one girl that he claimed he was interested in. She's my best friend. 
And I would go back and forth with her. You know, she's like, oh, no, he's straight. He's straight. And I was like, no, like, listen, babe, he's fucking gay as a $3 bill. <laughs> you know? Okay. And, so so why haven't you tried to kiss him? Like, you're playing with his nipple. You're cuddling. And you didn't kiss him? You didn't just, like, go in for the kiss? Because usually people start with a kiss and end up playing with nipples. They don't play with nipples and then move on to kissing. Well, okay. So it wasn't like, all right. So this is, so I was, like, laying next to him. And he was, he wasn't even spooning. He was just kind of laying there. And then I was like rubbing his chest and he didn't have anything bad to say about it. So then I just kind of was like, Ooh, nipple. And then I started, you know, flicking his nipple, you know, and it was hard. Isn't that like a turn on thing? Like if your nipples hard? Yeah. But that can be a physiological response to people's nipples get hard sometimes for any sorts of reasons. And if somebody's playing with them that even they're not attracted to, the nipple can still mind of its own harden and respond. Right. Just kiss, but, the, just, kiss so, the, just kiss the dude already. Just like say – but don't like lunge at him and kiss him. Don't sexually assault him. Get close and say, I want to kiss you. And then say – if he okay. says nothing, says, I'm going to kiss you if you don't tell me not to. Okay. Because then he doesn't but have to like, verbalize. And if he stands there, you're kind of getting – and I'm going to get into trouble for this – a kind of physical manifestation of consent. If you say, if, if, I, if you don't tell me not to, I'm going to kiss you. And he stands there with his lips parted, breathing heavily – that's kind of a yes. Okay. But the other problem is whenever him and I hang out, because he doesn't want to hang out with me alone. Go figure. So, right. Isn't that kind of weird? Am I the only one who thinks that's weird? Well, that you can read that two ways. Either he doesn't want to hang out with you alone because he is straight and, you know, doesn't want you creeping on him too hard. And so it's easier if there are witnesses to keep you from creeping on him too hard. Or he is gay and doesn't trust himself with you alone, is afraid of what could happen if you two were alone in a room together. Afraid that you might get advice from a creepy old fag who would tell you to kiss him. Well, <laughs> I don't think you're that creepy. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and this is where you say not that old either. Yeah, that too. Well, that was a long pause. <laughs> My advice is to make your, make your move... Take no for an answer. If you make your move and he shoots you down, either he's not gay or you're not the gay dude he's going to come out of the closet for, even tiptoe out of the closet for. You know, it could be that he's gay and not into you, not attracted to you the same way that you're attracted to him. That happens. Right. So make your move, make your pass, use your words. I want to kiss you. If you keep standing there, if you keep laying there with my nipple in your hand, I'm going to kiss you. Beat, beat, beat. If he doesn't object, kiss him. But if he says, I'm not interested, if he, if he pulls away, da, 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 take that no for an answer. That's not a no to he's right. gay, but that's a no to you that's pretty clear. Right, okay. So you, so you don't want me to beat him over the head, tie him up in my bed, and then have my way with him? No. Right? That was a long okay. pause on my part, but no, no. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. Not unless you send me the videotape. Don't don't rape him. Don't rape anybody. Let's err on the side of never raping anybody ever, all of us, okay? Right, obviously. I would never rape anybody. Well, and that's the thing. I don't wanna I don't wanna make him so uncomfortable. But but sometimes you have to make the closet case uncomfortable. It's discomfort that leverages people out of the closet. They get more miserable in the closet. You know, you 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 reach this tipping point where you're gay, you're out. You reach this tipping point where you go. The misery I fear outside the closet can't be worse than the misery I'm experiencing here inside the closet. And you come out. Right, exactly. And so to make him a little miserable by dangling in front of him the cock that he wants, 
is one way to get him to come the fuck out. That's almost what it takes in, in, in many, many cases to get people to come out. They're inside the closet looking out at what they want and they realize the only way they're going to ever get it is if they walk the fuck out of the closet. And sometimes right. you have to – sometimes we play that role. We are that thing that they're looking at and they go, all right, and they come out and they do it. You know, in college, I terrorized this poor kid who was a year or two uh, younger than me in, in uh, my program who was obviously gay and closeted. And I would say, you're gay. You're gay. Nobody believes this. Knock it off. You're gay. And I ran into him years later and I felt terrible. Like I, I terrorized him. And I ran into him years yeah. later as adults in our 30s. And I felt terrible for what I had done to him. I'd been such an asshole. And he came up to me and I was like, oh, my God. And the first thing out of my mouth was, I'm so sorry for how I treated you. And what came out of his mouth at the exact same time was, thank you so much for what you did to me. Because me saying right. you're gay, like I, I sort of hustled him, tore, tore his closet down around him and it was for the best and it's what he wanted. And I felt bad about it and you know, it's a coincidence that it worked out as well as it did. That he wasn't angry is uh, – you know, that was a lucky accident and I wouldn't do that again to somebody. But – so, so you, you, you terrorizing him a little bit is good okay. because right. it's sometimes that terror, which is kind of like desire, that draws somebody out of the closet. You can be that figure right. in his life. But, st but stop fucking around. Stop hemming and hawing. The next time you guys are cuddling with your shirts off and you're playing with his nipples, just say, I really want to kiss you and see what okay. he says. Okay. So, okay. So I have to get him alone, basically, and cuddle him and then <sighs> drop the bomb. Yeah. If you can describe a kiss after cuddling and nipple play as the bomb, yeah, you drop that bomb then. Listen. All right. I have been trying to get this kid to come out of the closet for like three years. If I get to kiss him, that is a bomb. That's a bomb <laughs> Okay. All right. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate that. You're welcome. Good luck. Yeah. Hi, Dan. I was just thinking about this whole Dimeshi thing. And something that kind of struck at thought with me. You said to keep your bullshit meters on. And something that I thought of was most kinky people wouldn't compare their relationship to Fifty Shades of Grey. As a rule, kinky people kind of hate Fifty Shades of Grey and seem to try to distance themselves from it. Just a thought. Hey, Dan. I was listening to the responses on your last episode, and there's that lady that was going on about how women need to be romance to be in the mood to have sex. And I, I hate when people make generalizations about whole genders of people. Like, some people, sure, I'm guessing that they want romance, but I'm a female. I probably would love sex at any point in the day. If someone's like, hey, I want to have sex, I'd be like, yes. And it has nothing to do with getting flowers or being romantic. I'm allowed to have an equally extensive and point-blank sex drive, even though I'm a female. Hi, Dan. I have a response to uh, episode 417 and the first caller who is a woman in her mid-20s and has a boyfriend in his mid-30s. Their relationship is great and she sees a future with him, including kids, but for one little problem of sexual incompatibility. I'm a late 40s woman who was in the exact same position and feels compelled to tell this mid-20s woman to please try and fix this or end it now. And I had a boyfriend who my husband now, who wasn't really into sex or my kink of choice, such as sexual submission. But I thought, hey, you know, I can fix him. What kind of guy doesn't want that in his life, right? 
I'm sad to say that I agree with you, Dan, that he, this woman's boyfriend probably can't or won't be all that keen on trying to fix it now. So now is the time to walk away before you end up in my boat, 25 years married with three kids, frustrated as hell and very close to ending my relationship. This is a toxic cancerous tumor that will explode one day and poison every other aspect of your life. Best of luck to you. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Before we get to the rest of it, here's a save the date announcement. December 5th in Seattle at the Neptune Theater, we will be doing a live taping of a very special, crazy Christmas spectacular edition of the Savage Lovecast. Lots to see. Singers, dancers, Santa, the human menorah, adult baby Jesus. You're going to want to be there. Tickets go on sale soon. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage, and I will tweet out the link to the tickets when they become available, which should be this week. Also, follow RuPaul on Twitter at RuPaul. The Savage Love Cast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Rescue. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Love Cast. Thanks for downloading.